going to continue to look at 1 John, and I, I wanted to explain, um, I wanted to share a little bit about how I prepare these. We look through whole books of the Bible, and I prepare them usually several weeks in advance, at least the basic outlines. And the passage we come to in 1 John today is one that the part before it and the part after it, I thought, oh, these will be really good. But this bit that we're going to look at, I thought, maybe I can incorporate it into one or the other because it's, it's you know, I'm not sure how exciting or how relevant um, it is. It's the Word of God and it is relevant, and I know that, but that was the feeling. Uh, however, as I prepared this, I realized this is just exactly what we need to hear as a church, and there's just so much uh, practical, good wisdom and advice in it, and I hope that you'll see that as we look at it. But before we turn to 1 John, I want to read in Romans chapter 8, and uh, I'm going to refer to it on page 1134, and we'll read verses 1 to 7, uh, 1 to 17 rather, and what we do when we read is I will read uh, this, uh, then I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and your response is, thanks be to God, because we do thank God that this is His Word. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His, His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father." The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, help us as we come to Your Word now. There's so many things that would distract us so many hurts and wounds and frustrations and tiredness and sin and concerns and worries that come in to choke the Word even before it has a chance to take root. Don't let that happen. Speak to us. 
Pray for any who do not know you, that as you speak through your word, they would be drawn to you. For those who do and are young in the faith, that they may be built up in their most holy faith. For those who know you and are tired and weary, that they may be re-energized. And for all of us as a fellowship of your people, we long to be filled with your Spirit, not for our glory, but for yours. And that for, for those who do not know you, whom we know and whom we love, and the people around us, Lord, help us so that we may draw closer to you and in so doing be enabled to draw others. In your name we ask it. Amen. Let's turn to 1 John. You'll find it on page 1,225. We're going to read from verse 12, page 1,225, right at the bottom there. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. That we've looked at in this book have actually been really tough. How do you know you're a Christian? Obedience to God, love for God, love for His people. And we saw last week just how tough uh, that is, that love is. It's a real high standard. Now, there's an immediate danger when we take these two things that what, what, it, what we end up doing is we end up doubting our faith. Um, John is not writing to these people trying to say, really, you're not really Christians. He doesn't want them to doubt their salvation. I think we can be very subtle in this respect, and what I mean by that is this. We think it's good for people to be compelled to doubt their salvation. After all, surely it would be a horrible thing if you thought you were a Christian and you weren't, so it's a good idea for people to doubt. Now, we usually have it, it's a good idea for other people to doubt, not for ourselves. And sometimes uh, people like me as well, there, there's an enormous danger that we're so scared of having people in the church who are not really Christians and think they are, that we bruise the reed, as Jesus, the bruised reed, He will, he will not break. I, I think that, that sometimes it's easy for Christians to do the devil's work for Him. What John does here is he sets this really high standard, but he now goes on in these verses to provide reassurance so that <coughs> they will be motivated to complete, to do what has been said, not because they doubt, but because they have assurance. And what he does is he teaches something here that's probably a poem. It's in poetic form. It may have been something to memorize, I'm not sure, but it's different, and the NIV spaces it out correctly, differently, so it's done like that. Now, the problem, one of the first problems when you read that is, who's he talking to? Children, young men, fathers, old men? What about the women? All the women who are here, you can just all switch off now, or you can listen for behalf of your men, if, if, if you're saying it's only addressed to men. Well, it's actually quite difficult in terms of working out exactly who he's speaking to. 
it, it is a stylistic device written in the form of poetry, and that helps. C.H. Dodd argues that all Christians are by grace, not nature, children in innocence and dependence on the Heavenly Father, young men in strength and fathers in experience. In other words, although it's a stylistic device, it's not a case that you can just say, well, let's just go down the line here and it's fathers and young men, so young women forget it, or mothers forget it. I think that when he talks about children, it's everyone. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children, it's what he, he writes about three times in this letter. He refers to all Christians as being children. Fathers, uh, that's older Christians in maturity. This was written in a patriarchal society, in a society where uh, male, male pronouns and so on were used all the time. And I, I don't think, I think it is right uh, and I'm not trying to read 21st century into it, but it's, it's not just the men that is being referred to. And the young men are the next generation, and that includes the women as well. In verse 13, it talks about children um, as well as verse 12, but it uses a different word. And I think that verse 12 refers to all the believers. I write to you, dear children. He's saying, I'm writing to all of you. That's how you interpret this. He's writing to everyone. He's writing to the older. He's writing to the younger. And then in verse 13, when he says, I write to you, dear children, he uses a completely different word for children. And I think he is there referring to, um, you know, what we would call children, young people, very young people. Some have argued that this, these verses are about, not about age, but about spiritual maturity. And there's an element in which that is correct, um, but it's still the case that in order to have years of Christian experience, you need to have years of actually having lived on this earth. You do not become, you do not have a 20-year-old Christian who has the experience of a 40-year-old, of a person who's been a Christian for 40 years and so on. So, it's a and it's possible as well that you could be many, many years as a Christian, but still be babies in the faith. That's the other aspect of it that we're going to look at. So, what he's referring to is he's basically writing to the whole church, and he's recognizing that there are differences, at least three age groups, and differences, at least three uh, area, levels of Christian experience and maturity. And we bear that in mind as we look at this. Now, he says four things. Hopefully, I can get this to work. Oops. Is it not going on to the… There we go. First thing, he's telling them, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Verse 12, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. I think that is hugely, hugely important. We are forgiven not because of what we have done. We are forgiven not because we have done enough penitence or because we have prayed enough or anything like that. We are forgiven because of His name and because of what He has done. You feel guilty that you're not obedient enough. You feel guilty that you don't love enough. And John comes and he says, you're forgiven. So the name of God is at stake here. The honor of God is at stake here. The name of God reflects the nature of God. I googled Paradise Road. I thought there's got to be a Paradise Road in Dundee. And I, I thought, actually, it was in 
Whitfield, when they wanted to rename, you know how certain housing estates get a name, and they rename it, they knock it down, rebuild it, and rename it, because if you're from Dundee, you think, you know, forgive me saying this, but I have an image, I don't want to buy a house in Kirkton, or Whitfields, or Fintry, or whatever. Well, why not? So but anyway, builders come along, and they rename it, and I thought, Paradise Road. Well, you know where Paradise Road is in Dundee? It's the hill town. And I've been Paradise Road in the hill town, and a more inappropriately named place you could not find. It really is. You look at how, how we name things, and basically, you read a housing advert, and you think, oh, and you look at the, you know, the estate is called Paradise Estate, and you think, uh-oh, this is, you know, you're immediately suspicious because of the name. Names are meant to convey something. Well, here, it's because of the name of God that we are forgiven. Acts 2.38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is in the name of Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else, Acts 4.12. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And John is saying, forgiveness is all about Jesus. You have been forgiven on account of the name of Jesus. And that's true of you. If you are a Christian, you've committed your life to follow Jesus Christ. There are so many things that are wrong with you. There are so many things that are wrong with me, but I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. Now, that works so well in so many different ways. It's the, the tense that he uses is in Greek what's known as a perfect aorist tense. And what that means is it's something that happened in the past, but the effects remain. You have been forgiven and you remain forgive, absolutely forgiven. God forgives in a way that we don't, and you have to grasp this. You have to grasp this for yourself, and you have to grasp this because how it impacts how we treat other people. See, you hurt me, I forgive you, but I remember it, and I keep it like an axe over your head so that the next time you hurt me, I bring it back up and I say, wait a minute, this is a repeat of what you did before. So I've not really forgotten what you did. I, oh, I mean, I'm very spiritual and I'm very kind and I go, I forgive you, and, and of course, but it's there. It's stored in the back of my mind, maybe not even deliberately, but the next time you hurt me, I am going to remember that and it's going to come up. We have forgiven, but not forgotten. But you read in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. And you see, that works with God. God doesn't say, okay, I'm forgiving you this time. You really screwed up as a Christian, but in like Californian law, three strikes and you're out. I heard of a man who has gone to jail, I think last week, he's gone to jail for 20 years for stealing a can of Coke, because it was his third time that he was found guilty of something. That's absolutely mental. But that's, we, have this, we have this kind of attitude. We think, okay, God says, right, I screwed up once. Second time, bad idea. Third time, that's it, I'm finished. And we think that that's how God operates, because in a way, that's how we naturally operate. But John says, you have been forgiven. You remain forgiven. Your sins, all of them, have been forgiven. And that should really help us in so many different ways. 
And that helps you, when you to try and understand what Jesus was saying when he was asked, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seventy times seven. Now, I'm not great in mass, but I think that's 490. So, I mean, who's counting? Uh, we, we're, we actually talked about this in the membership class. Who's counting? Actually, some people do count. But for most of us, you know, we've got another 465 times to go. There's an awful lot of forgiveness before you reach that point where you literally say, well, Lord, I've done it now 490 times. I've forgiven them 490 times. Now, I, that was greatly impacted on me with Philebian uh, on Wednesday. Philebian uh, sat there and told us about some of the stuff that happened in Burundi. What I liked about him more than anything else was just his absolute honesty and realism when he said that it was a very long, slow path for him to forgive. His neighbor, uh, Hugh, this is right, isn't it? His neighbor killed his father and then married his mother. So his stepfather he was the man who married, who, who'd killed his father. He had to live with that. And he, in his heart, he said, I felt that hatred. Well, wouldn't you? Absolutely. We feel hatred about things that are grossly insignificant in comparison with that. But this wasn't a story of a Christian who said, oh, I've got to forgive, and so I forgave, and everything was like, it was a story of a man who struggled over many, many years to, to work out, how, how can I forgive? How can this work? It's only when you understand the radical nature of God's forgiveness that you can begin to put that into place in terms of your own life. It's only when you're sure of your own salvation that you can be forgiving and forgive like Christ. And John says, you are forgiven. And from that basis, you can then work out forgiveness in your life. Now, I was thinking, how do I practically apply this? And here's one very simple way. We're going to take communion next Sunday. And can I suggest you do this over the next week? That you go through, go through a list of all the Christians that you know. Go through a list of all the believers in this congregation. Go through a list of all the maybe Christians you work with or whatever. And if you have anything against anybody, just forgive them. Forgive them. And ask the Lord to forgive you for holding on to it. Let it go. Let it go. It is an incredibly liberating thing. John says you're forgiven. John also says this. Next one, please. I think my battery must be gone on this. He says, you know Jesus. Thank you, Andy. I write to you, dear children, your sins have been forgiven. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. The fathers who have known him who is from the beginning. Now, John is dealing here with older people or more mature people. Um, I'm going to give you two quotes from Calvin on this. Uh, one, I, I was so amused with these quotes and challenged by them as well. I'm now classing myself, by the way, as an older person. I've got over the barrier. I've got over the I'm not 17 anymore thing. And I'm now classing myself as an older person. This is what Calvin says. Moroseness is the character of the old, but they become especially unteachable because they number wisdom by the number of years. So those of you who are older, there's a temptation sometimes to think, I'm older, I know more. But there's a moroseness that comes in, and I think that's so true. And John's writing to them, and he's saying, you know, I write to you, Father, he says, you know, but you know him who's a lot older than you are. You know him who is from the beginning. 
And so, again, back to 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and so on. And John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what John is saying here is, to those who are older, he's saying the mark of spiritual maturity is to grow in the knowledge of God. You fathers, you mothers in the faith, you, you hold firm to the sound doctrine about Christ. There is no route to maturity other than a deepening knowledge of Christ. Those who know Him love Him. To be a father in the faith, to be a mother in the faith, is to have progressed to a deep communion with God, is to be a spiritual adult. And one of the tragedies of the church are the number of adults who are spiritual infants. It is one of the great weaknesses of the church in, in, in Scotland that we are running around in nappies when we should be teaching and helping others. We're in that Hebrew situation that where, where Paul says, I want to instruct you, but I can only give you milk because you can't take the strong meat of the Word. And so he's saying you know God. It's not just conversion. It's knowing God. It's aware of the presence of God. It's, um, it's experiential knowledge of God. Now, that knowledge is also for the children. You see verse 13, the, and there it's the very young children. It's possible for our three-year, four-, five-year-olds to know God. That's what we long for. That's what we, we, we pray for. When they're in Sunday school just now, we're praying that they will come to know God. Some of them do. It's possible to have an experiential, real, heartfelt knowledge of God as a very small child. But imagine if you become a Christian when you're four or five years old. What should you be like when you're 80 years old? You should have such a depth of knowledge of Jesus Christ and experience of Jesus Christ. Now, for some people, even using that language is extremely arrogant. Could we go on to the next one, please, Andy? Um, this was a letter that was wasn't sent directly to me. I've left out the beginning of it. I put it in at first and then thought it was, it was basically, um, the man there, by the way, is me. Um, I was struck by the profound conceit of the man, which I must say is often characteristic of your many other apologist guests. He apparently is convinced that he's managed to pick out the one true God and religion from among the hundreds or thousands of other deities and beliefs that humans have followed throughout history, despite none of these being distinguished by any objective and reliable ev evidence. He further speaks from conviction that his particular reading of his sacred book, the Bible, is infallible. And there were various other things that followed on. Now, what do you do when someone says, you claim to know God, you are an incredibly arrogant person? My inclination to go is, no, I'm the most humble person I know. When someone accuses you of arrogance, you can't win. Because you can't go, no, I'm not arrogant, I'm humble. Because that would be arrogant. And if you go, yes, I am arrogant, they just say, told you so. So... I mean, you're stuck with that. Now, I know that I have a personality and a way of discussing and so on, which, which is arrogant because I'm very self-centered. I just happen to think that virtually all of you are as well. Most human beings are self-centered. It's our problem. And we need to, to get away from that, and we do need humility, and I need humility more than anyone else. But I'm not going to lie down to the kind of emotional bullying which says, if you claim to know God... You're arrogant. Because that's where so many of us get crippled in our, in our witness. How dare you claim to know? What do you mean you know God? And then you reduce it to your own personal experience and you say, well, I feel this and I feel that. 
No, it is possible to know God. That's what John says. He says, listen, you know God. Little children, you know God. Fathers, you know God. You know him. It is no more conceited to say that Jesus is God than it is to say that the earth is round. It's not conceited. That person up there, what he's done is he said, you've picked out your religion. You're saying, I know this. I've worked it out. No, uh, the only way we know God is because Jesus has revealed himself to us. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, and so on. And that's a great thing. If you are a Christian, have confidence and assurance that you are forgiven. Have confidence and assurance that you do actually know God. Next one, please, Andy. Third thing he says is you're victorious over the devil. The Christian life is not just about forgiveness and fellowship. It is also about fighting. There is a real battle. And that's why he says, I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. There's an enormous temptation for young people. Calvin talks about vigor of mind and strength of body inebriates them. And what that means is when you're young, you feel strong, vigor of mind, strength of body. What do I need? I'm young, I'm confident, and I've walked right into the very trap of the devil. That's why Paul says, don't let a young convert become a leader unless they fall into the devil's sin, pride. And so many young people have, have fallen exactly into that one. There is a real battle that is going on. And again, we need to recognize and not be in, in, in fear and in cringing about it. We need to recognize that battle, and we need to recognize what has happened to us. We have been rescued from the devil's grip. He has no more power over us. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. God's assurance, even to the newest Christian, even to the young men. You may be a young person who's been a Christian just a tiny amount of time, and older Christians will warn you. Well, watch out, because the devil's going to get you. And they mean well. All the Christians really mean well because they see a young convert and the young convert's full of life and enthusiasm and you know that they're going to stumble and fall at some point. So you just tell them that they are. Maybe help them stumble and fall so you can, you know, that's, that's how we work. We don't like people being overconfident in their faith. We've been through it. We've been battered. Watch out. The devil's about. Mm -hmm. But what John says is the devil's about but the devil is defeated. We are victorious. We are more than conquerors. Satan is overcome. We're in a battle. There's no room for spectators. There's no room for consumers. We need warriors. But the victory is the Lord's. The battle belongs to the Lord. And if you don't grasp that, you will collapse. Because when you see what is against you, but if you see who is for you, then it gives you a tremendous confidence. So he says, you are forgiven. You know Christ. You're victorious over the devil. And the last one, can we go on to the last one? You are strong in the word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. This is how our strength is renewed. It's through the word of God. The word of God sustains us and builds us up. I love don't have time to read the whole of it, but Isaiah 40, we'll read Isaiah 40, verse uh, 29. 
He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It's not natural youthfulness that gives us strength. The enemies we face, the world, the flesh, the devil, we are worn out. Our life sometimes seems to consist of, as a Christian, in the words of Eric Clapton, Dear Lord, give me strength to carry on. But in the words of the song, You are my strength. You are my strength. Where do we get our, his energy, which so powerfully works in me, says Paul. There's a strength, there's a power, there's an energy, and it comes from the Word of God. Now again, let me cite Calvin on this. He says, the old, for the most part, excuse themselves because they have exceeded the age of learning. I'm too old to learn, in other words. Children refuse to learn as they are not yet old enough. I've got better things to do. And men of middle age do not attend because they are occupied with other pursuits. That's true. Those who are older, I'm past learning. Those who are younger, I'm not there yet. Those who are middle-aged, I'm too busy. Those are the things that we say in terms of learning the Word of God. And that's the situation I believe we are in, in a culture and as a church, that we are money-rich and time-poor. And we really need to help one another with this. The fathers of the church, as he says, should teach the young the Word of God. The Evangelical Alliance say that one in seven Christians in Britain don't open their Bible outside church, and increasingly, they don't even need to open their Bible inside church. That's why the Evangelical Alliance, in conjunction with other groups, are starting something in 2011 they're calling Bible Fresh for the 400th anniversary of the King James Version of the Bible. And it's really just trying to get people back into the Word of God and trying to read the Bible and get reconnected with the Bible. Nothing matters more for the future of the church than this. Without it, we cannot be strong. Without it, we will be swept away. Now, here's the challenge for us. Here's the challenge for you. There are older Christians here in this church, and you need to take up this challenge. You need to be teaching the Word of God. Some of you have recently come to St. Peter's and you're thinking, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Well, maybe one of the reasons that God has brought you here is because we need people who've got more experience and we need people who know the Word of God and we need people who are able to communicate and pass that on. If you think the communication of the Word of God is going to be solely or even mainly done through my teaching or Brian or anyone else teaching from here, that's wrong. The teaching has to be communicated and passed on. Some of you have come to this church to be fed because we lay such an emphasis on the Word of God. And that's true. But here's the rub. Young or old, you are also to feed. If you don't do that, this is what's going to happen. This church will not grow anymore because we will denigrate ourselves into cliques. It'll be you and your friends who come. 
you'll have all different kinds of groups. You'll have people who are, we're the spiritual ones, and we're going to see how everyone else gets on, and you won't do anything to help people become more spiritual. There'll be others who say, we're young. I know what it's like as a student. You hunt in packs. You know, you're really, really scared. Um, Don't do that. What I've observed sometimes is you get a group of students come, and even if there's another student, a single person on their own, they're not part of your pack, so you don't speak to them. That's not, that's not right. You're there to teach and to communicate to other people. There's, it's easy to be older and cynical and observe and to be an observer, but we have to work together. So... Uh, I'm not 100% sure exactly how we do this, but I do know this, that every single Christian in this congregation has got to be asking, how do I learn and how do I pass on what I learn? And it's in connection with one another. That's why the fellowship groups are so good. That's why uh, just talking to people is so good and so important. And here's a challenge. If you are an older person, and you see, I, I, I'm trying to think of a collective term for a group of students, a swarm of students or something, then, then be really, really brave and go and speak to somebody who's very different from you and invite them to your home and share with them your experience of the Word of God and you will learn from them as well. Don't be one of these people who, I remember when we had a congregation here of about 30 people, and I remember one lovely older Christian saying, oh, I hope we don't get swamped with students. And I'm looking saying, there's 1,100 seats. How can we be swamped with students? But the idea was the, the, the character of the church will change because, you know, we need older people. We need, the character of the church, we need every single person who comes. Now, if you're a younger person, do something really courageous and really different. Break out from your group. And go and speak to somebody who's very different from you, who might even reject you. Who knows? We all have that fear of rejection. But we go and we talk and we share with one another. If uh, someone new comes into the church, it should never be the case that somebody will have to say, hey, go and speak to them because they're new. We should always be looking to welcome people. But it's much, much more than just welcoming. It's communicating and teaching and feeding one another. I can't feed people. Yes, you can. If you've been fed anything, you can feed people. In fact, you have to. If you want to grow yourself, you have to pass on. The body of Christ is organic. It's organic. It's it's not an institution. It's people who are connected with one another. We're being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Paul writes in Ephesians that it's as each part does its work that we are joined together. So here's the rub. You are forgiven. You know Christ. You are victorious over the devil. You are strong in the word of God. What is holding you back? Your sin? You're forgiven. Other people? Forgive them. What's holding you back? Well, I I don't know enough. You're learning. You're being taught. What is holding us back? Only fear, only because we don't believe this, only because we're ridden with guilt, only because our experiential knowledge of Christ is so weak, only because we fear the devil that we might be defeated, only because we are weak in the Word of God. But we're not. That's the great thing that we've got. In the membership class, and I'll finish with this, we had the 
the um, image of what, what kind of things church worship services were, and one was as a lecture hall. Please understand, when I am teaching the Word of God, it's not a lecture. It's not for you to get some information and go away and keep the information. This is a food distribution center. You are being given the Word of God. You have to pass it on or it will go stale. You have to communicate it. You have to share it. And we need this complete interconnection where we're all mentoring, all pastoring, all sharing, all helping one another. We'll take training programs, absolutely. We'll take formal teaching, absolutely. We'll take DVDs. We'll take film. We'll take anything that helps us learn the Word of Christ more. But we've got to pass it on. And that really is what John is saying. He's saying, look, you're forgiven. You know Christ. You're victorious over the devil. You're strong in the Word of God. Now, share it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word to us. Bless it to us. Enable us to understand and to apply it. In your name, amen.